You're listening to the audio podcast of Richard Hefner's Open Mind. For more information, visit 13.org slash open mind. I'm Richard Hefner, your host on The Open Mind, and I suspect you'll find it passing strange for quite such an ancient as I am still to have heroes, to have lived so long, to have seen so many saints and sinners, to have measured the fancies and foibles of so many persons in the public eye, and still to have held steady in my admiration for one or another of them. But I very much do, do delight in having heroes, And I've inveigled perhaps the liveliest one of all to join me here again for this open mind and to stay with me for at least another one as well. Bill Moyers is still a youngster at the top of his form, to be sure, which for me preeminently means as an American public intellectual and as very much an old-time, long-time preacher and teacher, if you will. Indeed, I prefer to identify my friend just that way, rather than as the print journalist, ordained Baptist minister, early Peace Corps executive, presidential press secretary, newspaper publisher, commercial and public broadcaster, and splendid prose writer he has been over the years since he was born in Oklahoma, raised and schooled in Texas. Most of all, my guest is a superb conversationalist, with whom I at times disagree but whose skills on and off the air I admire, admittedly to the point of envy, and whose wonderfully readable book just published by the New Press and drawn from his most recent public broadcasting venture is Bill Moyer's journal, The Conversation Continues. I trust, of course, that as we all read and reread the book, we'll find the conversation continuing on the air once again as well. But even before I press my guest on that point, let me turn to a conversation here in Bill Moyer's journal that first impressed me so much when I watched it on the air and that then led my guest to speak at Boston University in an October 2010 celebration of the life and legacy of historian Howard Zinn, who had died only weeks after his Moyer's journal conversation, one that focused so much new attention on Zinn's People's History of the United States. Bill, welcome. And uh, welcome, too, to this wonderful book. I turned to the Howard Zinn conversation because, you know, I sort of disagreed with it when I watched it on the air. Uh, But I was so impressed with the way you gave Zinn the credit for writing his uh, wonderful book. When you went to give your remarks at the celebration of his life and legacy. You started off by saying, uh, I am a journalist, not a historian. The difference between a journalist and a historian is that the historian knows the difference. What do you mean? I mean that journalists should, as some famous editor said, remember that they're only writing the first draft of history. They're not writing the permanent record that will finally be in the archives. The historian has a, an opportunity and an obligation to sum up. Uh, the journalist can mainly report and analyze and comment, and a reporter should never, a journalist should never confuse the, 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 the two because history has a 
greater obligation, it seems to me. Historians have a greater obligation to make sure that they have reflected on what they do than reporters who are often pressed against deadlines. But isn't that the same old getting off the hook for the journalist? I'm pressed by a deadline. Don't hold me to the responsibilities of the historian. Meeting a deadline doesn't mean being irresponsible. It just means you're going to be very incomplete. And you should know that when you advocate for your piece or advocate for your opinion or advocate for your broadcast. You should know that, uh, that you are providing a less than holistic story. Of course, a historian does too. But a historian takes the t he finishes, she finishes, uh, without regard to the deadline. It's done when it's done, not because the publisher said, we're going to publish the 15th of, 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 of July or not. Uh, the deadline is no excuse for being unaccountable. It's no excuse for inaccuracy. It's no excuse for, uh, for, um, um, for hurried, and judge hurried judgment. But it does mean you have to finish and get it into the paper or on the air. And what you do must be grounded but it is not complete. But of course what happens most of the times when I have journalists at this table and talk about history and news, uh, they say, don't put that burden on me, as if they're <clears throat> trying to escape. What do, you, what do they mean by the burden? What the burden? The burden that you talk of as the blessed responsibility and opportunity of the historian to put things in perspective. They consider that to be a burden. Well, I'm, I, I know some who don't. I know some who really believe, you know, you take the late Johnny Apple, you take uh, some of the, the, the best, John Darton, whose brother you had on here earlier this summer. Those reporters know they're working against a deadline, but they also know that within that context, within that incubator, or within that environment, they still, their story needs, still needs to be grounded. It's not complete. It's not the whole story but it is one that for which they need to and are quite willing to stand. Of course there are irresponsible journalists, and we find more of them. You know, we live in now what, what um, Whitman called the mere smoke of opinion, so that there are large news organizations that thrive and make huge profits by simply offering opinion. No reporting, uh, no editing to speak of, uh, no contextual um, uh, framing of, of the stories. They're just doing an opinionated narrative of the day's events as they see them. Um, and that's irresponsible and that's dangerous because we now have 24-7, uh, a 24-7 wordlitzer that is pumping out all the time music and a cacophony of sound that, that fills our ears even though we may not listen to it. I mean, you're not protected against the toxins of the environment released by other people's cars just because you keep your car in the garage all the time. So you may not watch Fox News or listen to right-wing radio or, or MSNBC, but that, those ideas and those opinions are filtrating out into the environment which all of us breathe and affect, therefore, our culture and our environment. Okay, let's, let's, let's for a minute go back to the Moy Bill Moyer's journal, the conversation continues. What's John Stewart doing in this book? Well, John Stewart has a large influence, far beyond what you and I will ever achieve. So just as if, you know, I'm not an evangelistic, I'm not a, a fundamentalist Christian, but I'm curious as a journalist about fundamentalist Christians because they are there and they have influence. They are a presence in the lives of so many people. That's what we, we journalists can indulge that, uh, that license 
to, uh, to, to explain things we don't understand and to, and, to, and to listen and talk to people we may not agree with. John Stewart plays a unique role in American culture. He says he's not a journalist, and I believe him that he doesn't claim to be a journalist, but he is a satirist, and he does do what Mark Twain did, which is to get us closer to the verifiable truth than almost anybody else in his genre. You can do that with humor. Juxtaposition is, in fact, the very nature of much humor. And by, by, by using brilliant, he has a brilliant research team over there, I've met some of them, but by, by going back into the archives and finding what Bill Moyer said 10 years ago uh, and, 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 and what Bill Moyer said yesterday, he can at least ask about the contradiction. Uh, maybe it's changed, maybe I've changed over the 10 years, but that ability to hold up contradictory uh, commentary that uh, over the years is a great way of getting at uh, keeping us honest. And his role in society is larger than almost any other person on the air I know uh, because of his ability to, um, to, to come back to what has been said and hold us accountable. Uh, for it. He also is a phenomenon. He's a very intelligent man. I've had some time with him. I had him on the show because he sees the media and sees culture from that very unique perspective of the satirist. Look, when he went on, what was that show on CNN, uh, Crossfire? Yeah, Crossfire. And he, and it was just, a, just a, a, a battering of each other and an irresponsible opinion. And he said, well, you guys are hurting this country. What are you doing? Aren't you ashamed of yourself? It reminded me, in a different way, of Joseph Welch, who finally said to Joseph McCarthy at the hearings in Washington, Sir, have you no dignity left? Have you no shame left? Because John Stewart took a stand, that pollution from that broadcast ended. You couldn't have done that. I couldn't have done that. Why can he do it? He has a certain power. In our society, so I'm really interested in John Stewart, and I think he starts. Well, I had him first in the book because he was the first guest on my show when I came back on the air in 2007 with Bill Moyer's Journal. I wanted to get his take on culture. The second guest in that show was Josh Marshall, who is the founder and publisher of what I think is the best political journal website uh, in, in cyberspace today, TalkingPointsMemo.com. I wanted the, the perspective of two different kinds of journalists. John Mar Josh Marshall is an old-fashioned journalist, began in print, now has a very interesting and responsible blog. And here's John Stewart, who's a creature of the new media, uh, the, 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 the comedy show, as a form of exclusive, exclusive in the sense that some young people only get their information from John Stewart. So I'm fascinated as a journalist by John Stewart. I also think he's a very intelligent man. Do I approve of the language that he uses on the show? I, it offends my mother and it offends, it would have offended my mother and I'm offended by it too, but I don't have to watch. I don't have to listen. I listen because he always is telling me something new that I would like to know. When he went on Crossfire and gave them the business, I applauded. I thought that was just wonderful. When I heard about it, I hadn't seen it, but I wondered as I watched him, as I did last night, uh, hoping I was going to see his discussion with you, but seeing instead uh, his jokes about wiener uh, and wieners. Uh, I felt that he was doing the same thing that he accused the Crossfire people of doing, of downgrading, because 
you take responsibility for uh, your public reputation too. When I ask my students, where do you get the news, your news about the world? They don't say from the New York Times, they don't say from any newspaper or journal. They say from John Stewart. And do you ask them why? Do, you, do they tell you why that is so? Just for the reasons that you gave. He is so attractive, he's so smart, he's so with it. He's so vulgar. He represents so much, at least in his speech, in his humor, what gets to our younger generation. So one applauds him. But what about the responsibility some, someone has to take, that you take for what you say, for what you do, for what you represent? Well, I make a lot of mistakes as a, as, as a journalist. But you know, judgment, Stuart asked me on the show, and I didn't give him a very good answer last night. It was later than the version you saw, which was a repeat. But Stuart asked me, where does the authority of the journalist come from? And that authority is largely presumed, but it is confirmed by judgment backed up by evidence. Our credibility, to the extent we have it, and whatever authority that credibility gives us, comes because we reach conclusions that we will report this or say that, but we do so if we are accountable, if we are responsible, by grounding that decision and that judgment in evidence. I still believe, Dick, in evidence-driven journalism. Even when I offer my own assessment or analysis or commentary, as you might say, at the end of a broadcast, I try to do so within the context of the evidence that I have presented so that you can understand why I have reached that conclusion. You may not agree with that conclusion, but I hope that you see I reach that conclusion when I do because I have marshaled the material, the evidence from which I've drawn it. I never do a commentary or analysis saying what, to myself what I'm going to say when I get there. I always gather the information and decide what I'm going to say. Now, whether that satisfies my critics or not, or whether it satisfies even the public at large, it satisfies me because I feel responsible to make sure you understand that I'm saying this because of the case that has been organized. You talk about your critics. Who and what are your critics and what do they say? And what do you think the most legitimate criticism of Moyers might be? Well, my most consistent critics are on the right. Um, and they have been ever since I worked in the campaign to defeat Barry Goldwater in, uh, in 1964. Uh, we have a different philosophy of government, a different philosophy of America, and they don't appreciate uh, the, my progressive views in the, to, the, to the point. You know, they, I believe that we are better as a society by cooperating than competing. I mean, I, I don't buy the mythology of the free market. We saw the mythology of the free market pay off in 2008 with the collapse of, the, of, of 30 years of that philosophy. But they don't agree with my philosophy about life, for one thing. They don't agree with the fact that I worked for Kennedy and Johnson in 1960 to 1967. And they don't believe that, uh, that uh, I'm, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't see, I don't, I do appreciate the conservative uh, view of the world. I grew up among conservatives, principled conservatives, who believed that the purpose of conservatism was to hold institutions and people to certain standards, to 
offer a break, B-R-A-K-E, on uh, the passions and impulses of people. Well, I am a, you know, I consider myself a, 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 a progressive because I believe democracy should be a break, B-R-A-K-E, on human power, on power and greed. They don't agree with that. They believe that government is, is an obstacle to their ideology. I don't. I believe good government is a way of checking uh, the power of capital. You know, capital, raw, hungry capital, can, like fire, turn from a good servant into a bad master. And if we don't have ways to temper the ravenous appetite of capital, we will keep having repetitions of what we saw in 2008. And ultimately, the institutions, which conservatives should respect, that provide this break on human passion and, and excess will crumble. And we will be living in a chaos instead of a civilization. Do you see yourself essentially as a commentator? No, I sometimes commentate. But I see myself primarily as, a, as, an, as an editor, an assignment editor with my team. I've always had a sense. You know, it's, I, I was affected by an interview I once read with Wayne Gretzky. Wayne Gretzky was the, the great one, he was right. called, of hockey. And he was asked, what, was, what, was, what did he see as his unique skill? And he said, well, I try to skate to where the puck is going, not to where it is. And that's what I try to do as an editor and as a journalist. I mean, I used to report all the time. I've spent years in the field reporting for documentaries and, uh, and, 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 uh, and broadcasting. I, and I loved it. You reach a certain age and period when you can't do that as much as you used to. So I, I've always thought of myself as a reporter, but more of an editor who, who reads. And, and by the way, somebody has said of Gretzky, he was marvelous at reading the game. Now, because I've been in government, because I've been in politics, because I've been, I was a, I studied religion, uh, grew up in a religious environment, I think I can read the game uh, uh, with a different perspective from others. Not a better perspective, but a different perspective. So reading the game that way, uh, I feel obliged from time to time, not all the time. I get criticized often for not telling you what I think about what I've just reported or an interview I've just done. But sometimes I feel the necessity that I feel I owe you my conclusion about what I've just reported. And some people criticize that. Some people don't. I get stopped all the time on the street by people who say, why don't you come back? I miss your essays. That's where we, you know pull the pieces together and give a shape to what I've seen that day or that, that week. No journalist can ever think that he is above criticism. And if he does think it, he'll be reminded very quickly that he's not. How do you feel about the contemporary um, media presentation of uh, partisan opinion? I am Including low. your own? Well, political is not partisan. I am. I, I think the Democratic Party. Is, Fair enough. Uh, I, I honestly, I saw a poll the other day. Fifty-two percent of the American people believe that both parties no longer reflect their interests, and I am part of that fifty-two percent. I can no more defend the Democratic Party 
then I can uh, praise the Republican Party. I mean, I don't understand the weird things going on in the Republican Party. I do not understand this marriage of ideology uh, and the language and, it's, it, and, 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 and the irrelevance, the immaturity of their political discourse, the sheer opposition that they set out to mount against uh, Obama. That's partly to do with race. But I do know why the Democratic Party is corrupted. They decided that they would go to the same sources of uh, great wealth, uh, corporations and others, and they are today in thrall to many of the same corporate and rich powers that the, that the Republicans are. We have two parties serving corporate and business America and no party that serves ideally, that, that serves the middle class or working people. And so I, I'm without a party, Dick. Uh, you know, we always have to make some choices in an election. You make a, 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 a slight degree of, you've got to cast your vote, so it's this decision based on this differentiation. But as a whole, both parties are, 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 are critical reasons for the crisis in our democracy. Our democracy is dysfunctional. It isn't working. It isn't solving a single problem. The Senate might as well not be there. It is what it was 100 years ago when David Graham Phillips, a great muckraker in the, in the vein of, of Upton Sinclair and Nellie Bly and others, wrote a book called The Treason of the Senate. Well, the Senate has betrayed its constitutional obligations. And so both parties today are contributing to the dysfunction of democracy. That's why I think we need, uh, you know, I'm drawn, I, I'm not a radical, but I'm drawn to the Howard Zins and the Ralph Naders and, 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 and others because change comes from the outside. It cannot come from within the two parties today. They are frozen, paralyzed, purchased. And so it's got to come. From Howard Zinn's great message, and he was a flawed historian. He was. We know that from his life and his record. But he got this right. He said, do not look to your leaders to bring about change. Change comes only when people organize and fight from outside the system for the change that they need. Everybody, he said, every ordinary people, every ordinary person should be a history maker. That's, you love that, and you love the parallel quote from Margaret Mead. Uh, that just a few people in a room make a difference. Uh, and uh, I understand what you're saying, and I made the mistake of using the word uh, partisan. I should ask you about a political perspective, a philosophical perspective on the air, where increasingly today, that's what we have. If you're not in this camp, you're in that camp or the other camp. Uh, broadcasting, as I knew it, is gone. Well, I, I have a lot of respect for some in that other camp. And in, in this book, you will find uh, Ross Dothout. Before he was uh, a New York Times columnist, he wrote a marvelous book on what the Republican Party, how the Republican Party should revive itself. Mickey Edwards who found it, was a co-founder of the Heritage Foundation, was president of the American Constitutional, uh, uh, that conser leading conservative group, uh, started out as a, as, as a Barry Goldwater. I've got Barry Goldwater's uh, top press aide in here. He was on the other side when I was in 19, 
1964, he was touting and serving Goldwater, and I was touting and serving Lyndon Johnson in 1964. And we had never met until I'd read two of his books, and I really liked them. Uh, and, and so I asked him on the show. You didn't bring him back. You didn't bring him on the program. You didn't put him in the book to espouse those old ideas. No, I wanted, I, I wanted to know, you know, all of us have changed. My goodness. Bill I have changed since I was 20, 1960 when I went to Washington. I was 26 years old. My faith, my politics, my philosophy, you say, uh, keeps growing. Every experience creates a new reality. And if you live long enough, those realities change you. So Vic has changed. I mean, he says in this interview that if Barry Goldwater were running today, if Barry Goldwater were living today, he wouldn't run for president. He couldn't represent that party. You know, he was very much uh, uh, in favor of equality, of gay rights, of rights for all of us, irrespective of our sexual orientation. He loathed the, the combining of, of, ter of politicizing religion. He was very much against uh, uh, encroachments on church and state. So Vic Gold says Barry Goldwater would not run for president today. And Vic Gold, Vic, Vic Gold says, you know, Dick Cheney, whom he knew, I think Vic collaborated with, uh, with uh, Dick Cheney's wife in writing a novel. I'm not sure about that, but I do remember that. And he said Cheney was unrecognizable as vice president from the man who had been his friend. So the reason conservatives are in this book is because they are trying to make sense of what has happened to their party. Uh, and I keep trying to make sense of what has happened to the Democratic Party. When I grew up, the Democratic Party, while very racist Southern Party, was also for the working people. And it was for my father. My father voted four times for Franklin Roosevelt. He would have voted fifth and sixth times if he'd had the chance. Uh, and he never met Roosevelt, of course. But my father felt that he had a friend in the White House. How long has it been? since the working men of women in this country have felt they have a real friend in the White House. As a pro, you know that when I get the signal cut, I cut, but you're going to sit there and we'll do another program. Bill Moyes, thanks for joining me today. It's good to be here. And thanks, too, to you in the audience. I hope you join us again next time. Meanwhile, as another old friend used to say, good night and good luck. And do visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to reprise this program online right now or to draw upon our archive of 1,500 or so other Open Mind and related programs. That's 13.org slash openmind.